many, many years ago, a fellow by the name of Napoleon. Some of you have heard of him. Uh, I don't think he's been completely taken out of every history book, but uh, Napoleon decided that he would commission this very famous uh, artist who would sculpt great historical figures. And he commissioned this guy to uh, sculpt the image of Venus. And he said to Napoleon, and this was going to be a big deal, by the way, because this was going to go in the Louvre in Paris. But uh, he said, I can't do this. You see, I have already sculpted Jesus Christ. And there is no way in the world that these tools would be used to sculpt any being less than the Christ. Identifying who the Christ is. Isn't Jesus unique? Isn't he special? When you go back through the, the lens of time and you appreciate who Jesus is through historians, he was indeed, even if he was not the God-man to these historians, he was indeed an incredible historical figure. No one doubted that. So let's think about Jesus tonight. Let's consider who he was, not just his persona as we studied this morning, but let's go a little deeper than that. Let's look in Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse number 1, and we're going to appreciate some things about Jesus and his preeminence uh, and how that impacts us as a people and hopefully makes us better. So first of all, when you look at chapter 1, this, by the way, of course, is one of the prison epistles, and it talks about the supremacy of Christ. In chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, we find the Apostle Paul extending a greeting to the church at Colossae, made up primarily of Grecian Christians, followed by um, some words of thanksgiving and then a prayer. And here we go. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother. I want to pause there for just a moment and just identify the key players, if you will. Number one, who do you have? Paul. Of course, he was initially called Saul. Saul would have been more of a Hebrew name, Paul being more of a Grecian name. And do you know what the name Paul means? It quite literally means little one. Some have argued that it's little because he was short and fat and bald-headed. No comments. Um, But uh, I'm not sure if that's what it, it meant. It could be signifying that he was little in significance to the Christ. Maybe that's what it means. I don't know exactly what it's a reference to, but it does mean that he's little. And isn't it interesting how Paul, his name is mentioned in the same line with the Christ. Paul, an apostle, that is one cent, of Jesus, the Asus, Savior, Christ, Christos, Messiah, would be the Hebrew equivalent, and then meaning the anointed one. So Paul, little, a servant or one sent, by Savior, the anointed one, the unique one, the special one, the Messiah. 
Paul, Apostle Jesus, by the will of God, and Timotheus, that is, honored by God, our brother, to the saints. Grecian Christians, something I want you to know about yourself, your saints. Your saints. Your hagion, you're holy. You're unique. You're set apart. You're different from everybody else. You are saints. You ever heard somebody refer to themselves as talking about themselves as a Christian? I'm a Christian, but I'm no saint. I beg your pardon? You are hagion. You are holy. You're special. You're not like the rest of the world. You are, as Peter would say, God's peculiar people set apart for a noble purpose. And so to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. Now Paul's right there. This is, don't miss this. When you pull the whole text together, Colossians chapters 1 through 4, and you have an understanding of what chapter 2 is all about, you'll notice that he's identifying these people as being faithful brethren in comparison to the likes of the false teachers that he's warning against in chapter 2. Okay? So Paul is making a statement here. You're faithful. You're holy. You're different. You're set apart. And you're faithful. And my brethren, in Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord. So now we have the introduction of the word kurion. Lord. The equivalent would be Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant name of God. And so, who is being referenced here? The Almighty, the Lord, the Savior, Jesus, the Christ, Messiah, the Anointed One of God. Grace and peace to you. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. So now what he's done is he's shifted from some introductory comments where he's extending um, um, a greeting, a very common greeting, to now praising and thanking God for them. Okay? We give thanks to God and we pray always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. I'm going to stop right there. Let's see. Verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Seven verses. Jesus is referenced 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Twelve times. Twelve times in seven verses we have a reference to the Christ. If you look at... Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, the first three of the prison epistles. You have one of them, the book of Ephesians, being a reference to all that the church of Christ is. Isn't it a wonderful body? Ephesians 4, verse 4, there's one body. 
Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, the body is the church and the church is the body. And then you have the book of Philippians. It's all about how wonderful it is to live the life of a Christian. And isn't it good to be a Christian? Having been called out of the world to wear the name Christian, belonging to the Christ. And now you come to the book of Colossians and it's all about how wonderful Jesus is. So Ephesians is an emphasis on the church of Christ. Colossians is an emphasis on the Christ of the church. And I think we, if we're not careful, we can spend a lot of time focusing on the church of Christ to the extent that we forget about talking about the Christ of the church. And you can't have one without the other. You know, some folks will, will claim, just give me Jesus, but don't give me the church. And quite frankly, there are some who say, give me the church, but don't give me Jesus. Well, we've got to have both. And Colossians is all about that. Twelve times, an emphasis on the Christ in the introductory remarks. And then when you get to verse number nine, we have a transition from his greeting, from his words of thanksgiving, now to words that constitute a prayer. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, and all patience and long suffering, with joyfulness. I'm going to pause right there. I don't know if, if you're on social media. I think many of you are. I know many of you are. But this past week, Paul put out a video. I don't mean to embarrass you, Paul, but he put out a video of a song that he produced. And that song has a lot of images in it. People sent images to you, I guess, through email or social media or something. People sent him images, and he was requesting images of people doing, doing God work, being servants, okay? And I listened to the song and then read the lyrics. I thought, man, this is, this is wonderful. And I don't know if, if this particular text served as some inspiration for Paul in the producing of this song, but if you take what he did and look at it under the umbrella of this prayer, you have a very biblical concept in that song. Look at it. Filled with knowledge and understanding. Paul prayed about that when he was leading us in prayer a moment ago. That you might, and here's, here's the idea that came out in the song, that you might walk worthy of the Lord and be fruitful and strengthened with all might. That's the thesis of his, of his song. I, I guess this is somewhat of a commercial break. You ought to check out that song. It's really good. Um, but this is what Paul was praying for, for these Grecian Christians, that you would work hard, that you would grow in knowledge and wisdom, understanding here is wisdom, that you would bear a lot of fruit so that you can walk worthy of your calling. 
and then enjoy the strength that comes from God. All right. As you progress a little further in this text, I told you we were going to be impressed with who God is or who Jesus is. Number one, we appreciate how that Jesus is preeminent. There's no one to compare to him. No one else can be called the Savior. No one else can be called the Anointed One. No one else can be called Master, Lord. Well, who was he? Look at verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God? The firstborn of every creature. Now, what does that mean? Oh, I know. That means that Father God created Jesus. That Jesus was not God, is not God, but Jesus was a created being. Is that what that means? Of course not. But yet that is what some folks would have us to believe about Jesus. That Jesus was not God, but yet he was a created being. And then there would be others that would say, oh yes, Jesus is God, but God created him to be God. Well, that doesn't seem to make sense. How can God be created and then be considered God? He can't. So what is this talking about? Well, look at this again. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? The word for firstborn there is a word that means preeminent. There's no one that would compare to him. Jesus was and is God, and no one is his likeness. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made by him, God. And there wasn't anything made without him, God, that was made. And I beheld the flesh, the Word, become flesh, and dwell among us, John 1.14. Jesus was and is God. He is preeminent. For by him were all things created, verse 16, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And... He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile, to buy back all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth, were things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled, bought back. When we look at this passage, we see, we see our past. What was our past? Wickedness, corrupt, unrighteous. That's who we were. We see our present. What is our present? Being reconciled, 
experiencing atonement, back in a right relationship with Him, we see the price that was paid, the blood of His cross, verse 20. We see our purpose. Look at verse 22. In the body of His flesh and through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, don't be moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Our purpose to live for Him and our prospect grounded and settled in the faith and hope in heaven because of the gospel. All of that because of who Jesus was, not because of who we are. All of that because of what Jesus did, not because of what we've done or might do, but it's all about Jesus. Now, if you go into chapter 2, and we're not going to camp here, I just want to make some observations very briefly. Because of who Jesus is, and because of what He's done for us, chapter 2 says that Jesus should be the answer to everything that is false. Do you appreciate Jesus? Do you appreciate His authority? Do you appreciate His preeminence? Will you trust in Him? Or will you trust in the philosophies of men? Will you trust in the religions of men? Will you trust in the, what they called the incipient Gnosticism that is man's perception of himself? Or will you lean on Jesus? Will you lean on Him? That's where we need to live. We need to live in a place that leans on Jesus and leans on His Word. I've got a lot of books in my library, and some of those books are, are human philosophy. And then I've got a section over here that's a section full of doc, denominational doctrines. I've got a section that's full of world religions. Uh, all kinds of different beliefs and ideologies. I'll have a section over here that deals with concepts, people concepts. Then over here, I've got a section that's just a bunch of translations of the Bible. Where should we live? We should live with the Bible. Because that's where Jesus is. And we lean on Him. And not on our own understanding or the understanding of others, but on Jesus. And when we do that, we get to experience chapters 3 and 4 of Colossians. Well, what does that look like? Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. If you're risen with Christ, now that goes back to chapter 2 and verse 12, which says we're buried with Him in baptism, all right? Buried with Jesus in baptism. If you then be risen with Christ, set your affections on things above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. For you're dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. When you and I become Christians, we are raised to walk 
in newness of life. In newness of life. Why? Because when we come out of that watery grave, we've experienced a death followed by a funeral. And when death happens and a funeral happens and that old person is put into that grave, that old corrupt, unrighteous, unholy, wicked person is put into that grave. What business have any of us going and digging that person back up? We don't want to dig that person back up. We don't want to be that person anymore because we're new. Look a little further here. Mortify, therefore. Mortify. Have a funeral. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, covetousness, and idolatry, and uh, evil concupiscence, and on and on. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which he also walked sometime when he lived in them. But now, put off. Change your clothes. Take off this old, wicked, corrupt garment and put on something different. Change your clothes. Put off these things. Anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy communication out of your mouth. And don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old man with his deeds. And when you come out of that watery grave of baptism, raised to walk a new life, be so different that not even your pets at home are going to recognize who you are. You're so uniquely different as a Christian. It revolutionizes you. You're a new man, verse 10. Renewed in knowledge. And guess who you're like? You're like Jesus who created you. Like Jesus. Chapter 1 all that he was, all that he is, I get to be like Jesus. And when I become more like Jesus, it changes me from the inside out. It changes my attitudes. Look at verse 12. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, mercy, kindness, humility, Meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, forgiveness. Verse 14, charity. See, I don't want to pull that person back out of the ground. I, I don't want anything to do with that individual. Because I've been revolutionized by Jesus. And my attitudes have fundamentally changed. From the inside out, I'm a different human being. But it also changes my relationships. Look at verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. A good, godly Christian wife is going to willingly submit herself, that is, put herself under the authority of her husband, just like Jesus put himself under the authority of God the Father. But the wife is going to do that. Why? He gives us the answer. Because she's doing it for Jesus. Husbands, you're going to love your wives and you're not going to be bitter against them. 
You're not going to have a bad attitude towards your spouse. Why? Because of Jesus. He's changed your heart. Children, obey your parents in, the, in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Young people, you're going to obey your parents. Why? Because of Jesus. Because it's the Jesus thing to do. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Fathers in particular, we're going to be very careful not to discourage our children from wanting to follow Jesus because He's changed us. Servants, obey in all things your masters. You might say even employees. Obey your employer. Not with eye service or men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Be the best employee that you can be. Why? Because you're serving Jesus. Dropping down to verse number, chapter 4. Masters, employers, given to your servants, employees, that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Employers, take good care of your employees. Because you're serving Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Well, we appreciate who Jesus was and is, chapter 1. It's going to help us to focus on His words, His authority, rather than the authority of men. And when we do that, we're going to put to death that old man willingly, never to raise him out of that grave again. And we're going to put on a new creature, and it's going to revolutionize who we are. It's going to change our attitudes. And it's going to change our relationships, all of them. Our relationships at home, husbands, wives, children, parents. It's going to change our relationships on our job, employers, employees, employees, employers. It's even going to change our relationships in the church. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, we have got to be a Jesus people. That's who we have to be. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. You see, it's all about Jesus. Who are you? Who are you? You're not an insurance salesman. You're not a marketing rep. You're not a doctor or nurse or attorney or whatever. Fill in the blank, whatever. That's not who you are. You're a Christian. You're a Christian. All of these other things, you're going to do the very best of your ability because you're serving Jesus in the process. Be a Christian. Let Jesus change your life. Let Jesus change your life beginning tonight. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to become one. Become a child of God by faith. Confessing that faith to us. I believe He's the Son of God. I want Him to be my Lord and Savior. Allow yourself to be immersed in water. Put to death that old man that old woman. <laughs> Put to death that old individual and come out of that watery grave 
raised to walk a brand new life. Let Jesus change who you are. If you need to make tonight's invitation yours, do so now as together we stand and as we sing.